Hi, I'm Louise. And I'm John. And you're listening to the DCIF podcast, Changing World, New Opportunities, an investment podcast designed for members of the DC community. We'll be chatting with asset managers who are all passionate about DC and getting investment right for the members. Investments in DC have changed a lot, so we'll be helping you, the listener, to stay up to date with the latest, from real estate to alternatives, the challenges of trusteeship through to addressing climate change. This first series will focus on the changing world we find ourselves in and the exciting investment opportunities for DC plans. Keep up to date with our work at dcif.co.uk, where you can sign up to receive our research and get invitations to our launches. You can also follow us on Twitter at DCIF underscore UK and on LinkedIn, where we are the Defined Contribution Investment Forum. Fantastic. Let's get on with the show. Hi, Louise. How are you? I'm very well, John. How are you? Very well. Thanks very much. Um, So welcome to this episode on global real estate, where we're going to be chatting to Simon Redman, who is the Managing Director of Invesco Real Estate. This is the second episode in our sort of mini-series on real estate. Uh, we're very fortunate within the DCIF that we have a number of member firms who are experts in this field. So it's been great to get their views on the various aspects of real estate. And so the session with Simon is, is going to be fascinating because global real estate isn't something that, that I don't think many schemes have exposure to at the moment. So it'll be really interesting to understand Simon's um, area of expertise and the benefits that actually investing in global real estate can actually do to a DC default. And you know, Simon is a, a man who um, you know, definitely puts his money where his mouth is because as we'll hear uh, later on in the podcast, he has 30% of his own DC pot invested in global real estate. So it'd be great to hear um, the, ra- uh, the reasons why he's actually got this within his DC pot. Yeah, I think as with so many of our guests on this podcast, Simon's passion for um, his asset class really stood out to me. Um, and yeah, I found it so interesting that he has put his money where his mouth is. And um, he, you know, he was just off a plane, I think, and and tired. And yet he's so incredibly articulate talking about the case for global real estate. And I'm sure everyone will find it a really interesting listen. Well, let's hear from Simon. Well, Simon, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast today. It's great to have you. Louise, it's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So I was wondering, as a property expert, I wondered if you could just paint us a bit of a picture of how UKDC schemes are investing in property at the moment. What's going on? What are you What are you seeing? Of course. Well, most pension funds have had some allocation to property almost forever. You know, the allocation's gone up and down a little bit over time, and DC pension schemes have tended to have less of an allocation than many other more traditional or DB pension plans. And the reason for that is, I think, not an unwillingness to do so, but just the ability to be able to invest effectively in property. They've had just fewer options to be able to invest in property, which I think is unfortunate. You know, in any portfolio, it's good to have property against equities or stocks or bonds or fixed income because they all have a role to play. And property has a very good role to play in that it provides good long term stable income. It performs differently in different circumstances. You know, for example, this year has been had nowhere to hide in listed markets. You know, equities and fixed income have been down significantly. Property's been up. And so there's always a very good role for it. Just DC schemes have had fewer options than other institutional investors, which I think is a pity. Mm. So, I mean, it has been a bit of a, a sort of tumultuous year in, in the economy. What challenges have you seen over the last year or so, what's been difficult? 
Well, being in property, it's actually it's been pretty easy in the last year or so relative to other asset classes. We've had some great performance. But if I could go back again, you know, just briefly onto the DC challenge. The DC challenge is that to invest in property, you need to be able to have something which is priced and you can invest in on a daily basis. And property typically isn't. And so what you've had to do is to find funds that can do that. And there are a few, but the, the options haven't been very broad. It's increasing, but they haven't been very broad. And so that's kind of some of the challenges they've had. And I think that you know, if we take the context in the past 12 months, where property has globally really performed pretty well compared to other asset classes, you haven't seen the same falls in value, then you know, it would have been a good thing to have. You know, but people say to me, is it, is it a good, is it an easy time to invest? It's never easy to invest in any market. And, and now it hasn't been easy to invest either. But you know, what we have been able to do is identify globally, and we look globally at where we see some of the most compelling opportunities by giving ourselves the choice of a wide market to invest in. You know, we can avoid or reduce the risks associated with some things we've seen in, in the UK, or more broadly in Europe in terms of a very high inflation, energy costs, war in Ukraine. You know, the impact of those is, is very Europe-centric. And there are other markets around which are less challenged by that. So, so we've been able to focus around the world on, on where we've seen less impacted markets than perhaps just the UK. Before we start to think about sort of global property versus the UK, can you just give a feel for what performance investors in UK property will have experienced over, say, the last, I don't know, 10 years and, and how that's split between sort of capital and income? Because I think they're the two main contributors to the total return that comes through from investing in commercial property. Yeah, of course. And that's, again, one of the benefits of property is you get the combination of, of the two. You know, some people have said to me, property is a bit like a, a bond with an equity market kicker. I don't think that's a great explanation, but you know, it helps. And so you know, long term, we would expect property to deliver somewhere between a, and this is a high quality core property, somewhere between a kind of a 7 to 8% return. And the last 12 months or so, the UK has performed pretty well, but it was coming off a very low base. And so it had dropped a bit, now it's recovering. And so on average, long term, I'd expect roughly 50% of that return to come from income and the other 50% to come from capital growth. And that capital growth ideally is because you get an increase in rents and that those increase in rents help increase the value. And that's another component of the, the return from property markets or property, which is helpful, particularly when we in an environment where there's inflation, is that rents broadly speaking, tend to keep pace with or exceed inflation in most circumstances. That's very helpful. It gives you what we would call a real income. And so you know, income doesn't get eroded by inflation. It keeps up with that. And so you know, the income piece is very important. But long-term, we expect roughly 50-50 between the two. That makes sense. So what sort of role do you see property playing in a, in a UK DC scheme portfolio, given there's that very helpful kind of reliable steady stream of income hopefully that you get from property so so what kind of allocations are you seeing a typical UKDC scheme making and at what point in the typical kind of members investment lifestyle would they be looking at property well i think there's a couple of questions there one is what allocation they have versus what perhaps they should have ah. <laughs> and i don't think they're necessarily the same so when we look across the dc space the allocations to property 
these days are relatively low. That may be only 5% or so. Some may get up to 10%. And if you, if you look at the kind of theoretical models, which you use in terms of asset allocation, then you can justify property or similar kind of assets to property being anywhere between 10 to 30% of the allocation. It's very rare for that to happen, particularly in DC schemes, because of the problems of accessing the right kind of property through funds and the fact they need to be daily priced and daily traded. But in theory, you should have somewhere between, I guess, 10 to 20%. 10 percent is probably the norm. Most DC funds are, are under that. And so then, you know, the other question you ask is at what point in, I guess, someone's life cycle of investing where they are, should they have property? And as we were discussing a little bit earlier on, property has two components, income and capital growth. It actually makes it very well suited to both your growth phase, if you like, before people retire when they're not necessarily wanting to take income, because you get both those components return. But also, we would recommend holding property all the way throughout, because you still get a relatively high real income from property. And so even if you've moved from when you're trying to grow your, your retirement part into a, a point when you're actually taking your, your beneficiary, taking income from it, property still has a role to play. Different parts of the property, when you get the total return, which is kind of pre-retirement, I guess, and then post-retirement, you're getting that income return, which can be distributed. And remember, you know, the good thing is, is that it tends to be a real income. It tends to keep up with inflation in most circumstances. And so you know, as you get older and inflation may erode some other income, property tends to keep up. So personally, I would recommend keeping property throughout your investment journey. It's a cheeky question, but is that what you do within your own DC pod? It is actually, yes. <laughs> Just when we start thinking about sort of global property, international property, what sort of markets would investors get exposure to if they went into a sort of typical in inverted commas global property fund? And you can think about that both from a sort of geographical perspective, but also from a sort of sector perspective as well. Quite interested to know what the differences are. Well, what's super interesting is that property isn't the same around the world. And you know, if you invest in stock markets and, and bonds around the world, you tend to get this kind of the same flavors, if you like. Doesn't matter where you're investing, similar kind of things. In property, it's different. Property is very local. So one of the benefits of investing in globally and international property is you do get different things to invest in. And you know, so if I'm sitting here in the UK, which I am today, you get the normal types of property, you'll have some offices. Within offices, you get different types as well. You have life science and things as well. You have warehousing or logistics, and you have some retail, and increasingly you have a bit of residential to rent. That's what you typically have in the UK. And if I go beyond what you have in the UK, let's look at some of the sectors we have in the US, for example, which create opportunities. So in the US, there's some other sectors where they don't really exist in the UK or not at sufficient scale to invest in. Things like self-storage, very big sector in the US. We like that because rents tend to reset monthly. So great for keeping up with inflation, for example. Single family housing in the US is a growing sector. It's relatively new. It's quite nascent, but really interesting institutionally. That doesn't really exist in the UK at all. And healthcare. So healthcare is a really interesting sector because when we're looking at where to invest, we're trying to look at secular trends. 
things which are impacting real estate or property over the long term. We don't have worry so much about short-term impacts of kind of inflation interest rates. They're important, but we're looking at things that transcend that. And so if you look at, say, demographic trends around the world, we see this in the UK, you see it in the US, you've got an aging population. In the US, though, unlike the UK, we've got the NHS, the US healthcare is privately funded. And in, in about 20 years' time, there will be 20 million more Americans over the age of 75, roughly the population of Australia, increasing by huge numbers. And they need further healthcare. So at the age of 75 or so, I believe you, you tend to visit a medical facility five times more often than if you're in your 30s. So that creates demand for healthcare, but in the US, it's privately funded. And so what we've done to answer that is we've been investing in healthcare facilities in the US and the Sunbelt states, where a lot of retirees are, to take advantage of what is that growing demand. So it's, it's looking at those secular opportunities, many of which just don't exist in the UK, which we can benefit from by investing internationally. Now, similarly, if I look at Asia, Asia for us is very compelling. And I'm talking about developed markets in Asia. In less than a decade, 60% of the world's urban population will be in Asian cities. So all of that urban migration that creates demand for housing, for places to work, places to shop, that's a growth opportunity if you invest in real estate. You can't necessarily say the same thing about investing in, in Europe or the UK. You don't have the same kind of urbanization drivers. So, so what the fact is we look at are long-term secular themes and their impact on markets is different around the world. It creates different opportunities than just you know, what I could achieve if I, if I was sitting in the UK. That makes sense. Thank you, Simon. And really interesting to hear about some practical examples as well. How correlated is property to other asset classes? It's not really. <laughs> I think it's a simple answer. So, you know, if you look at a particularly global property, then there's relatively little correlation between listed equities, stocks, or listed fixed income bonds. You know, the drivers are different. What tends to happen is that those markets, and I'm sure we're seeing it you know, often now with interest rate rises, you tend to get values or pricing in those listed markets react very quickly on a daily basis. You just don't get that in property. You know, It's slower moving, if you will, which is a good thing. So in a portfolio where you may get a lot of volatility, lots of ups and downs in other asset classes, you don't get that in property. So it's very uncorrelated. One of my colleagues once said that Property is an asset class where you can sleep at night. You're not going to wake up the next morning and suddenly the markets will fall in like you can with listed markets. It may fall, but it takes time to do that. It's much more predictable. So it, it's pretty uncorrelated. That's one of the, the reasons why it's good to have in a portfolio is because of its uncorrelated characteristics. And how's um, global property done year to date, just in an absolute context, but also say relative to UK property? Yeah, so year to date or past 12 months is probably easier. What I hear in from the UK, I haven't seen the latest figures, but I think uh, UK property is up somewhere between around 15% over the last year, albeit the last couple of months, I think it's, there's been some flat or negative returns. Globally, we're kind of similar, actually. One of our global portfolios the last 12 months, we've delivered 15.5% net. But what's interesting there is if you go back further, what we tend to see from global property is that the returns are much more consistent. 
So what we've seen in, in the UK is not as much as listed markets, but single market volatility. It goes up quite a lot, goes down quite a lot. Through COVID, there's a lot of value lost in UK property. We didn't see that in other markets around the world. And so the reason I would suggest being international is not to look at the last 12 months, but to last, look at the last three years or five years, where you get quite a lot of volatility, ups and downs in the UK property market. You know, Brexit had a big impact on UK property. It had no impact at all on the Japanese property market, for example. And so you will get much more stable returns from global property than just being in, in, in the UK. And I would think, as I was saying earlier on, there's some very compelling reasons why longer term, some of the strong secular themes like demographics, aging or inward migration are stronger in other regions around the world than they are in the UK, meaning that if you have that opportunity to invest internationally, we may well see better performance than we'll see in the UK. I don't know that for certain, obviously, but looking at the secular trends, there tend to be more secular trends which are positive elsewhere around the world than we necessarily see in the UK. When you're thinking about a global fund, how do you decide how much goes into each geography? You know, is it a kind of a third in Europe, a third in Asia, a third in the US? I'm sure it's not, but it might be yeah. more scientific <laughs> than that. But just curious as to, you know, how you decide what goes where. Yeah, we, we allocate dynamically. And there are lots of different ways of measuring it. So one of the ways of measuring the size of the global property market suggests it's around 23 trillion in terms of developed market, global property or real estate. Others come up with different figures. It's large, but it's it's roughly a third, a third, a third around the world. And that's pretty unusual. Most other asset classes, I think, tend to be skewed towards the US. It's roughly a third, a third, a third. And we have a neutral allocation. So our neutral allocation, when we set that, is 30% to Europe, 30% to Asia, Pacific, 40% to the US. We're slightly overweight to the US just because the liquidity in that market makes it a bit easier. But we do, we do allocate dynamically. It doesn't stay static. So for the last couple of years or so, we've been underweight to Europe, neutral to Asia, and overweight to the US. That's paid great dividends in that the returns we've seen for the last two or three years out of the US have averaged around 20% a year. Great. Whereas Europe's probably around 8% and Asia's somewhere in between the two. We're now tilting that allocation. So we're reducing our overweight position to the US. And we're really, we're staying underweight to Europe. And we're tilting that towards Asia because we see in the next three to five years, Asia having some of the more compelling dynamics than we perhaps see in the US and certainly the, that we see in, in Europe. So it's a dynamic allocation. It's not dynamic in the way that you have an, an equities portfolio where you can change it overnight. You know, we look at this on a forward-looking kind of 12-month period, and so we, we want to change allocations over that period of time. So we have to have a very long-term secular view rather than taking short-term bets, but we do change that allocation dynamically. Can I ask about ESG? I mean, obviously, everyone is talking about ESG and incorporating it into investment processes. I imagine when you're investing globally, that must be quite difficult because obviously you're investing in different countries which have different approaches to ESG. How do you go about doing that? Actually, it's, it's relatively simple when you're investing in, in real estate. And this is very different again to other asset classes. One of the, the benefits we have is that we control everything from the property up to the investor. So we have complete control. So different to when you're investing in a, a company's share, 
where you don't really have so much control over the management. You've got to rely on what they're saying from a sustainability perspective. Property is different. We have control. And so if we want to implement a, a global approach to sustainability, to ESG, ESG plus R, we call it, because we include resilience in there as well, then we can apply that philosophy globally. And we do. You know, you do slightly different things in different countries because you've got different climatic conditions and things. But actually, we implement a or have a global philosophy when it comes down to ESG and sustainability. And what I'm saying about it being great is the fact that we, we can do things directly. I don't really like the idea personally of just investing in something which is already sustainable. That's great. It's kind of been done. You know, my preference and our preference as a house is to look at how we can actually affect change. It's better, in my view, in our view, to take something which may not be sustainable and make it more sustainable, reduce its you know, carbon emissions. And if you've got direct control over properties like we have, you can do that. And it's things like being able to just change the lighting, make it more energy efficient, putting in place a more energy efficient management system. But you can have a direct impact. When we're refurbishing buildings, as we do, then we can make them more sustainable. We can reduce their energy consumption. We can improve the kind of plant and machinery. The world has moved on. We can change from what was in place 10 or 15 years ago to be much more efficient today. We can consider putting solar on the roof to provide additional power. We can, and we're doing this in Paris at the moment, we can have urban farming on the roof of a building. So one of the, the great things about having a, a physical asset, a physical building, is you can affect change directly. We can have a, a more material impact on carbon emissions from a social perspective because these are physical buildings that we can influence rather than just buying a share in a company. So just on that then, do you believe that the cost you might spend on sort of upgrading these assets will be more than compensated by an increase in the capital value of the building itself? Is that, is that the, sort of the, the straightforward maths in terms of you know, willing to commit money up front to get a benefit later on down the road? Well, in, you know, let me give you some examples from that because it's instructive. You don't have to assume, and I think it's wrong actually, to assume that by being sustainable, you can't improve value. And I think, again, real estate is one of the few asset classes where you can actually demonstrate that it adds value. So for example, you know, if we're refurbishing a building, you know, concrete is something which is carbon inefficient. And if we're refurbishing a building, we'll try and keep as much of the existing fabric of the building in place as, as we can. But we'll also recycle the concrete that we have, that we take out. You can reuse it. And we do that. And that's pretty efficient in terms of because you're not creating new concrete, you're using what's existing there. And then if you continue to refurbish the building and make it more energy efficient, it adds value. And just think of it like this. So you know, if you're a, a company wanting to lease a building now, or maybe even an individual, but a company, and you don't just look at what rent you pay, you look at the total cost of occupying a building. So there's rent, that's energy cost, whether that's electricity or water. And so if, if we can, as we refurbish buildings, make them more energy efficient, use less water, for the same budget a tenant might have, they can pay more rent. And so actually that adds value. 
So it, you don't need to think about being sustainable as something which it's not, it, you don't have to make a choice between adding value or being sustainable. I would advocate that actually being sustainable can significantly add value. That makes sense. So let's let's talk a bit about the perceived barriers to investing in property. Obviously, for DC investors, a big worry is cost and the charge cap. Do you see cost as a barrier to investing in property? And is there a difference between investing domestically and internationally in property? Would that affect the price? So, you know, the price of investing, whether it's local or international, that shouldn't vary significantly. It's more complex investing in an international portfolio. You have to have teams on the ground. But if you're someone like ourselves as a large manager, you know, we're not just relying on DC. And so we spread that cost across all of our investors. And so cost should not necessarily be a barrier to investing globally versus domestically. I think property as a physical asset generally is, is more expensive to manage. And that's because you need more people to do so. So if you're investing in you know, equities or bonds, you know, arguably you can have two or three people sitting there behind a screen and they can manage any number of or, or any, any amount, any assets under management in the same way as one portfolio. When you've got properties, there is a, a, a physical aspect to it. And if you're an asset manager who's got a business plan to improve the, improve the sustainability, for example, of a property, you can only do that with a finite number of properties. So an asset manager, a rule of thumb is that you know, they can actively manage somewhere between you know, five to 10 properties. Beyond that, you need to employ someone else. So the challenge with property is it's not as scalable. And so you know, it's a little bit more expensive, if you like, to manage than some other asset classes. But I think the way that many are dealing with this within the charge cap is that you can approach investing in listed assets on a passive basis. And you know, I think we all see over time that actually passive tends to deliver similar returns to active. And so on a passive basis, you can invest those listed assets, which is scalable and relatively easy. And then where you can't be passive, such as asset class like property, you can bear slightly higher fees. So the aggregate fits within the charge cap, but it's a bit of a barbell, I think, is the expression. So one end, you pay low, very low fees on passive investments, which means you can afford to pay a little bit more in terms of fees with those asset class like real estate, which just costs more to manage because you need more people. It's without necessarily increasing the total cost because you've gone yeah, exactly. you know, cheap yeah. and cheerful at one end and you can pay It's about averaging. Things. Yeah. And in terms of going back to a point you made earlier about your allocations between sort of the US, Europe and Asia, you mentioned that you historically had slightly more in the US because of liquidity, I think, I think you mentioned. Is that because it's easier to invest in the US or there's just more opportunities there? Well, it's a bit less complex because it's a single country. Every country you invest in adds a bit more complexity. And so having one country, it's not a big difference. Our neutral allocation to the US is 40%, whereas it's our neutral allocation to Europe and, and Asia is, is 30% each. So it's not a huge difference neutrally. But what I was saying is that in the last few years, we've been significantly overweight to the US. And that's been because we've seen the opportunity there. You know, the US effectively came out of COVID much earlier than other regions. And there's been huge economic growth as a result of that. And you've seen that economic growth. And with economic growth, companies get bigger. They want to employ more people. 
but there's only a finite number of properties. And so what happens is there's a bit of competition and rent goes up. And so we've seen that story play out in you know, many cycles. It's always the same around the world, but we've seen that particularly in the US the last couple of years. That's why returns have been 20% plus, is they benefited from that. Europe has been slower to come out of COVID. It hasn't seen the same economic growth. And, and now we've got other challenges at the moment in Europe. And then Asia, Asia is still being impacted by, by COVID. I was talking, you know, I've been, I speak to people across Asia regularly. I've been speaking to people in, in Hong Kong today and yesterday, and they still have quarantine when you go into the country. I spoke to people on a video conference yesterday in Hong Kong. They're all still wearing masks. And so you haven't seen the rebound, same rebound in Asia as we've seen in the US and a little bit in Europe. That's probably still to come. And so that's why we're allocating different markets. We, we, we just see different opportunities. They come up at different times. Returns differ. So we've moved from overweight to the US and we're moving to underweight and more overweight to Asia. It's interesting you bring up COVID. I mean, obviously, we at the start of COVID saw some property funds being gated. I, I just wondered how... I suppose how that's evolving, because I think that's a bit of a, a fear for DC investors, this fear of gating and, and not being able to access your funds and this kind of illiquidity risk, I guess. How is that evolving? And what, what do you think? Like, how likely are we to see that kind of event or not event? I mean, obviously, you can't gaze in your crystal ball and predict another COVID, but like another gating style event again. And, and is there any way that DC investors can try and mitigate some of that risk, I suppose. Yes. Look, first of all, I think investors need to accept that they're investing in an illiquid asset class. And that gives all the benefits I've described in terms of diversification, stability, et cetera, et cetera. So there, there are fundamental benefits of why you want an allocation into, into property. My own DC, DC scheme, we've got a 30% allocation actually into property, but it's it's you need to be fully aware that it's a liquid. And there may be times when, for whatever reason, it can't be sold or daily traded in a way as some people might, and it could be subject to gating. So that's, that's always going to be there. I think it's probably a you know, position of last resort, but it might be there. But there's a bit of a difference between looking at that domestically in one country, such as the UK, versus when you're looking at it globally. And so you know, some of those differences are that in the UK, you're exposed to a single market and that single market volatility going up and down. Whereas, and the UK is one of the most volatile property markets in the world, less so than stock markets, but still property-wise is pretty volatile. But when you're investing globally, what happens is that that volatility goes down dramatically because all countries perform slightly differently. And so you get much smoother returns. So that has, in theory, the benefit that there's less reason for someone wanting to redeem because you don't see that volatility of returns if you're investing globally. So that's number one, it helps being global. Number two, most UK property funds have only got UK investors. And UK investors tend to make a similar decision at the same time. They all want to subscribe or enter at the same time. They all want to exit. You know, it's a bit of a herd mentality. That makes it really challenging to manage a property fund when you see those everyone doing the same thing. Whereas what we think is better is to encourage investment by many different types of investors around the world. By being global, you're more likely to attract a very wide degree of investors. 
So that might be UK DC, but it may be Canadian DC investors or Australian ones, or it could be private banks in Southeast Asia, or it could be a wealth manager in, in the Nordics, for example. The point about that is that not only are you reducing the probability of people wanting to redeem because you're global, but having global investors, they don't all make the same decisions at the same time. You know, so the rationale of, say, a, a Canadian insurance company to redeem may be completely different from a UK DC. And so that it just makes it easier to manage inflows and outflows when you've got a, a diversified or wide variety of investors. Never say never, you can may still have the same problems, but you just reduce them significantly by A, investing globally and B, having a global investor base. So we've talked about the sort of diversification that comes through sort of global property, both in terms of interesting sectors and the countries themselves. As we find in investment, things never stay still for too long. So what sort of areas would a global property investor be thinking about coming into now in terms of new areas, whether it be a new country or new sectors? I think you mentioned sort of self-storage is something that US investors can get exposure to. But I'm just wondering, along the sustainability theme, you know, battery storage and these types of these you know, assets, do they tend to go into a global property fund or are they a bit more kind of infrastructure type assets? At the moment, they tend to be more infrastructure-like. You know, people talk a lot about data centers. They're not very ESG-friendly, by the way. But people talk about data centers. They tend to fall into property. They're heavy users, so that's not such a good thing. But I think where, in terms of different sectors, which is quite interesting, and this is partly impacted by COVID, partly things happening anyway as, as we evolve, is we see more onshoring, less global supply chains, although you know, they're still very active. And that creates demand for things like cold storage in buildings. And that's kind of interesting. So, you know, the UK is pretty advanced in terms of sort of grocery or food storage because we've been having online deliveries for years. And we realized recently in our house, household, we've been receiving some online de- deliveries, grocery deliveries, food deliveries for 19 years. You couldn't, wouldn't believe it. It's a long time. But you go to other, other places around the world, it's just beginning. And so part of that opportunity where it's just growing other places in, around the world is to invest in cold storage because you need cold storage to supply that online kind of grocery deliveries. And so you know, where do we see opportunities? Some of them are just the same opportunities that we've done already, you know, seen that story in one country, but we then take it to another one. So that cold storage is a good example of that. You know, life science is an opportunity around the world, but part of the challenge is that is the availability. People want to invest in life science in the UK. There are very few life science opportunities in the UK. And, and when they come up, there are lots and lots of people bidding for them. Whereas I'd rather look globally and find the same kind of life science opportunity where there are a few people bidding for them. So, so things like life science is a growing opportunity. Residential is growing as well. When the US, what they call multifamily, but what we mean is, is buildings for rent. And you know, we started investing that in the UK just over a decade ago. We were investing in Germany. We've invested in France, but we're now investing in Asia. So we've invested this year in Tokyo, and we're making our first investments in Australia. So you know, we can see opportunities around the world, but they change. And, and some are earlier stage and create better value opportunities than ones which are perhaps more mature. 
Thanks so much. I mean, Simon, I think that's a pretty good point to end on. You know, how how are you feeling about the future? Is always a nice place to finish. But have we have we not asked you anything that you wanted to talk about? Anything you think is important for DC investors? Well, and I think we have touched on it. What I want to see investors, DC investors, be able to have is the same opportunities as the the largest, most sophisticated investors we've been working with for decades. And really, that is the opportunity to invest globally. I don't really want to see in DC investors in the UK constrained just to investing in the UK market when that is you know, less than 5% of the global real estate market is in the UK. I want to see UK DC investors having exactly the same opportunities as those very large, sophisticated investors you can invest in anywhere around the world. You know, that's what I'd like to be able to see. You know, there's no reason why UK DC investors should have fewer opportunities. You know, they deserve better, in my view. Link to that, and I think this probably might be the final question, but typically with DB investors, they come up with some really interesting ideas and that concept will flow through to DC, but it might be have to be subtly changed to adapt to either DC investors themselves or actually the structure of DC do you think that would be the case with global property or is it almost a sort of one for one? What you get as a large DB or sophisticated investor is what you'd get as a DC investor. No, you need to make the opportunity for DC investors fit for DC investors. And we've touched on it before, but DC investors typically need to have daily pricing and daily trading. And so the trick or the challenge is to be able to create the same investment experience as we offer other investors, but in a way, wrapped in a way, created in a way that is easily accessible for DC. That's the hard bit. And it's absolutely worth making the effort to be able to make that investment experience of being global that we've seen for those large sophisticated institutional investors for years. It's worth the effort to make it available for DC. They deserve it. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Simon. Thank you. You've been listening to Changing World New Opportunities, brought to you by the DC Investment Forum. Head over to dcif.co.uk, where you can read all the research the DCIF publishes, follow the DCIF on Twitter and LinkedIn, and subscribe to this show on your favourite podcasting platform. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Changing World New Opportunities.